And this thing, it's entitled Becoming What You Are, is sort of a big deal. We're going to cover a ton of ground, so it could be a little bit challenging. Some of it could be a little bit edgy. Um, so just kind of put on your seatbelts and bear with me. And if you're watching from my old seminary, I'm breaking a couple rules. You guys can tell me if you notice the rules I break. You won't. Um, so the first story is this. It's a story about a story. Because ultimately, all sermons are really stories. And they're told by mere mortals about some things that they've been drawn to read, study, and meditate on. And those stories become sermons when at least two things happen. First, some sort of a divine engagement occurs, that the storyteller is is driven to have some important, hopefully scripture-driven application to everyday life related to whatever it is that they've been studying. The second thing is, uh, the human, the person who's been studying, feels sort of a drive or a compulsion to want to share they can't resist responding yes when they're asked. And there's an important, important point right off the bat, which is there's really nothing special about a sermon. It's just a story about how God has revealed some insight and application of what a Christian has been studying and thinking about. And all of us, all Christians, are commanded to read, to study, and to meditate on the Word. In fact, we're all commanded to go and be God's witnesses um, throughout the world, really, and, and we're, we're commanded to do that by sharing, whether that means speaking our story, writing our story, or just demonstrating our story by our lives. We're storytellers. So we'll go to the children's song. We're commanded to do this. We have no choice. The children's song says, this little light of mine, am I going to let it shine? And of course we are. Sticking with the story, the option is going to be to hide it under a bushel. And to that, we have to say no. But then again, there is something special about a sermon because the particular man called to preach that sermon has been anointed by God himself with a special purpose, to impact people for his kingdom by the sharing of his word. So this morning, what I want to talk about was a sermon that was sort of born before I was even asked to preach. But God knew I was going to preach it, and God knew I'd say yes and that I'd go ahead and do this. This sermon in particular, some of you know this if you were here um, a month ago, dates back to August. It starts this way. The crux of this mysterious and often misunderstood adventure, I guess we can call it, that I started about a year ago called family ministry is this, and this is important because I don't think people understand it. To extend, let me read it. To extend what Children's Church does every Sunday under Melissa Rowe's leadership to what happens in nursery under Melanie Eaton's leadership and then to connect that to the parents or the adults that share their children with us on Sunday mornings. We all started a new curriculum quarter, is what we call them. That's what I call them, because I grew up Southern Baptist. Grew up in the faith of Southern Baptist. Let me clarify that. I'm a recovering Episcopalian. Um, And the way we start off each new quarter is with a family ministry quarterly kickoff potluck lunch. And so one of the things that I do... Uh, as we kick the eight quarter off and we do this potluck, is I take the group, group publishing material called Faith Weaver, which is what we use as our curriculum in Children's Church, and I rewrite parts of it each of the 13 weeks. I develop four things out of the material. Uh, first, I make a one-page table, and it summarizes each week's story, each week's theme, application, key verse, and a memory verse. Then second, I take another effort and make a one-page table that takes that Sunday key verse and lists a verse for each day, Monday through Saturday, 
that relates to the particular Sunday key verse theme and application. These become sort of a resource for our volunteers so they can know what's going on the weeks before and after they serve, and more importantly to me, to the point of family ministry, they become a research on a, a, a resource rather for parents equipping them to take what we're doing on Sundays and follow through with that at home during the course of the week. So I think it's January 6th. You're all welcome to come to the next kickoff. Now, part of what we do in these quarterly kickoffs after we eat lunch, uh, before we actually do a little uh, training uh, on the layout of the Bible and how to do things, we go through this material that I put together. Um, And part of the training is to actually take a week's worth of those verses myself before the, uh, the kickoff, and I actually work with it. You know, I'll, I'll read, I'll diagram, I'll pray through the verse of the day for one of the weeks, uh, and then I'll jot all this down, I'll journal it. Uh, that way, when we do the quarterly kickoff, I can actually force everybody else to do it with me uh, as part of the training moment. Uh, and that's kind of cool. I split the group into the individual families, and then I make a group or two of the adults that come without families, and you're all welcome to come, whether you have kids or not and we just do it. And then afterwards, Dana posts both of these tables on the children's ministry website, children's ministry section of our Oasis website, and that way everyone, including you all, can have access to them. The third thing I do is easy. I take a a one-page summary right out of the material, uh, and that study is a sort of an adult-level teaching on the material that's going to be taught to the kids in the upcoming week. And it gives our, opportunity, our volunteers an opportunity to study up and learn what they're about to teach at an adult level. This stuff gets posted to a non-public section of the web. Uh, the last thing I do is I make a little poster with the verse of the week and a little comment or some version of the theme that's more age-appropriate for the nursery. And Dana prints these out and posts them in each of the nursery rooms each week. They also get posted to the non-public volunteer resources on the web. And so I started this process in August to gear up for our September kickoff, which was just about a month ago. Now, you're all scratching your head saying, so what, Ed? I assume. What does this have to do with anything? Um, Are you sharing all of this, Ed, just so we can all know how hard you work and how wonderful you are? Of course I am. Um, No, that's not quite the point. Uh, Ed, are you sharing this just as another sales pitch to get more volunteers back there? Maybe. Uh, it's, it's certainly true. We need volunteers. Um, in fact, as many of you know, we have a newly built room back there. Uh, the purpose of that is so we can split Children's Church into a younger elementary group and an older elementary group. The result of that is that Dennis and Dana now have uh, new, far-from-free office space downtown, but we have a little problem. We don't have enough volunteers to split the group and actually use the new room. So think about that, but that's not the point. Uh, The point of the story is this, that what I started working with in August and what the kids are working with in children's church and nursery through Christmas is the book of Genesis. And I have a a conviction, I'm convinced, I think, no, I know, otherwise it wouldn't be convinced in conviction, would it? Um, I know uh, that most of us as Christians are weak when it comes to our knowledge of what the Old Testament says, our understandings of what it means, and the application of the Old Testament to our lives as New Testament Christians. So today I'm going to make a a bit of an assertion. Uh, I'm going to suggest that Genesis in particular is incredibly important to a couple of things. Uh, What we know about it and what we do about it has huge implications for our personal Christianity. 
So we're going to look at some early simple parts of Genesis, and we're going to do it by looking at a couple things that all of us can relate to. We're going to look at two dysfunctional families and the dynamics within them. We're going to talk about Adam, and we're going to talk about Abraham and their families. So starting with Adam, uh, if we start with Adam and we start with the New Testament, we might as well start with creation. Uh, Another important point, uh, if a Christian doesn't understand the creation story and the New Testament version of it, which, by the way, exists, and it's in John 1, I believe, which reads, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that's not clearly understood, the Christian is in trouble right out of the box. Uh, The point of it is this. It's really simple. In the beginning, there was absolutely nothing except the triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, boom, period, that's it. Genesis 1 and 2, which I think Sue has on the board. Yes, thank you. Um, Describe it uh, very simply. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the, the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All there was is God. There was nothing else. Do you believe that? It's important. And from that nothingness, God created, right? The crown jewel of that creation, of course, was the human. It was us. God didn't want to be alone with his triune self. He wanted a steward for the rest of creation, and he wanted something among that creation that could relate to him in a special way. The next one that Sue's got, boom, thank you, describes it. And and if you know me, you know it's one of my favorite verses. Uh, It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. And that's why it's one of my favorite verses. Us. Plural. The whole trinity is at work. And image. We're made in the image of God. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So thus we have the story of from the dust of the ground, God forming Adam, literally, inside and out. And if you read, God breathed the breath of life directly into his lungs. And so began humanity. So began me and you. Well, together with Eve, I think we all know, almost immediately, Adam, that is all of humanity, that is you and I, rebelled. We ate of the forbidden fruit. He lost, and we lost our innocence. And as the serpent, which we know to be Satan, said in verse 5 of chapter 3, we became like God. That is, our eyes were opened, and almost immediately, no, instantly immediately, we became too smart for our own good. We were no longer content to be simply led by, obey, and follow the ultimate form of love, justice, and righteousness. That is God. No, Adam had to, and we have to, do it on our own. We don't need no stinking God. Do you recognize that this is the carnal, fleshly, human attitude of your heart and mine? It's important. So then we go out one generation, and we go to Adam and Eve's kids. In chapter 4, we meet Cain and Abel. Uh, Kim and I... We're a little bit terrified that we had to teach this to the kids last Sunday because if you know the story, Cain kills Abel, and that's not necessarily something I want to talk to six, seven-year-old kids about. Um, And there's a couple of points here, and thankfully neither one of them last Sunday when we taught had to do with killing, and neither one of them today has to do with killing. Uh, First is this. Cain and Abel did what they're supposed to do. They brought their offerings to God. Simple. 
Cain, the man of the field, brought produce. Abel, the man of the flock, brought meat. So what? Well, all of us, every single one of us, I hope, uh, I know, brings offerings to God in the form of money, time, and talents. But if you know the story, God preferred Abel's offering to Cain's, didn't he? And it was fascinating, just by the way, for Kim and I to be back there in Children's Church talking with the kids about this, because I was really blessed to hear kids share an opinion about why that is or how that worked, which was a blessing because it means some of the kids were actually exposed to this and wrestled with it at home. So if that's you, um, thank you, parents, because uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. But let's look what the Bible says here about the situation. Uh, thank you, Sue. Uh, so Cain is frustrated because God liked Abel's offering better. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Really important thought because it's relevant to us. Cain griped about God preferring Abel's gift. He was jealous. And God's point was, get over it. Just do the right thing. And I think God's issue, if you peel it back here, is not that he liked meat better than produce. The issue here is that Cain brought his gift begrudgingly out of obligation, whereas Abel brought his gift joyfully in response to God's love. It's an attitude issue. So the question is, do you check your attitude as you give or as you serve? Uh, And then another point, uh, think about the common foolishness of both Adam and Cain. Adam, after his eyes were opened, saw his nakedness, he tried to hide. Cain, after he killed his brother tried to hide the truth. But God knew exactly what's going on. He always knows exactly what's going on all the time and everywhere. That's why he called out to Adam and said, where are you? And when he called out to Cain, where is your brother? Because he knew they were going to try to skip out and hide. You can look that up yourselves in Genesis um, 3, 9, and 10 and 4, 9, and 10. So the question here is, I wonder, do you try to hide from God or do you think you're getting away with something? And that was kind of hard for me to wrestle with because, frankly, I do. Uh, Sometimes, probably more than I should. But here's what I've learned. I'm wasting my time at best, and I'm fooling myself at worst. So let's move on. Uh, We'll go on to the next Genesis family, and we're going to look at Abraham. We're going to look at his son Isaac, and the focus is going to be his sons Jacob and Esau. And we could spend forever. Uh, This could take us right up till Chili Fest, but it's not because if you need to go home and powder your nose... I do want to let you get out of here so you can do that before you go see the rose. And if you didn't sign up to the rose, and if Dave didn't say it, come. One o'clock, the rose house. They're over there. Ask them where they live. Um, So here's the deal. Uh, Abraham obediently responded to God when God sought him, and he immediately went where God told him to go, or when God told him to go. And I say when, not where, because he didn't even know where he was going to go. But he said, sure, I'll go. And the cliff notes is, for that, God rewarded him with the Abrahamic covenant, that Abraham would be a blessing of many nations and and just expand and grow. That's why the kids sing, Father Abraham, I'm one of them and so are you. Let's go praise the Lord, or whatever it is. Um, And you can read all about that on your own, (coughs) excuse me, in Genesis 15. Point, uh, the legacy was carried forward to Isaac, who was a good, obedient steward of that covenant, and it's his story, the story of Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, their twins, that I want to get to. Because it brings us to two really important concepts 
that we as New Testament Christians need to understand and that we as New Testament Christians need to own. Those two concepts are the birthright and the blessing. So the story goes like this. Now, first let me talk about the birthright and the blessing, sorry. Uh, The birthright is something that usually goes to the firstborn son, almost always. And the way I like to explain birthright to people is to think about the British monarchy, because we can all relate to that, I think. Uh, Here, the firstborn son, at least until 2015 when they passed a law saying it could be the firstborn of either gender, but Old Testament, the firstborn son is the crown prince. And the other children are still special, princes and princesses, but they're nothing compared to the firstborn, the crown prince. That's the birthright that we're talking about here in the Old Testament. Isaac got it from Abraham. Uh, In chapter 25, verse 6, it simply says, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. Everything is a big scope. And so with Isaac and Rebekah, there were the twins. First Esau and then Jacob. Esau first. Therefore, he was entitled to the birthright, but he literally gave it away to his brother because he was hungry. And if this is coming up on the screen, I I love this. It's a quick little story, so we'll read it. Uh, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that stew. I'm famished. And Jacob replied, naughty boy, first sell me your birthright. Esau, look, I'm about to die, said Esau. What good is the birthright to me? Jacob, still being naughty boy, says, swear to me first. And so Esau swore, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And then we get to what might be even more important or equally important, this issue of the father's blessing. And this is Genesis chapter 27. Uh, And it's a story that unfolds between Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau as Isaac was dying. See, the birthright brings what I consider to be sort of earthly benefits. It's the double inheritance. It's the prominence of being what amounts to the crown prince. And it's a big deal. But I think the blessing, the father's blessing, is an even bigger deal. Because when we think about that, this gets to personhood. This gets to affirmation and, and the double portion, the special blessing that goes to the firstborn. When you study it from the perspective of a New Testament Christian, uh, you get to what I think John Piper says to summarize it nicely, which is the blessing of God is being fully satisfied and receiving God's favor. In the Old Testament, it was the blessing of the father upon the children. And there was the primary blessing that went to the firstborn, that should have been Esau, and then everybody else gets a secondary blessing, which would have been Jacob. But here's the thing in the story. Rebecca liked Jacob better. Uh, so Rebecca, Isaac's wife, wanted Jacob to have Esau's entitlement of the blessing. And that's where we get the story in the rest of chapter 27 about Jacob disguising his arms to be all hairy and cooking up some meat uh, because Isaac had asked Esau to bring him some meat so that he, and Isaac's blind at this point, by the way, so uh, Isaac had asked Jacob to bring him some meat so that he could feed dad and get the blessing. Well, again, Jacob deceived Isaac. Jacob got both the blessing and the birthright and all of the rights and privileges and goodies that come with that. My request is that you really study, if you don't have pretty good comfort and familiarity with this concept of birthright and blessing, learn about what it meant in the Old Testament context because it really matters when you warp ahead into the New Testament. So let's do that. We'll ask the question, What does all of this have to do with Christianity in general? 
And what does all of this have to do with my Christianity in particular? And the answer is everything. It's all about who Christ is to you, what Christ is to you, and why Christ is those things to you. What you do with this concept, this person of Christ, and in turn, what the Holy Spirit means and is to you, what the Holy Spirit does in you and for you, these become everything to the New Testament Christian. Let me explain. We know about Adam. We just talked about it. He's the first created human. What do you do with Adam as a human and as a Christian? Do we just point at Adam and say, well, hey, that's it. He sinned. He started it. It's his fault. I have all the warts and the blemishes that I have. Well, that's not really an indicator of a Christian because what does it suggest? It suggests hopelessness. It suggests the inability to overcome and even an unwillingness to overcome. So enter Jesus Christ. The only, Jesus Christ, the only other human being entirely created by God. No, God didn't entirely create Eve from scratch. He started with a rib. And no, Jesus was not conceived in Mary the way we normally know it to work. He was placed there. Mary was sort of just an incubator. And yes, while Jesus was on the uh, earth, he was as fully God as he was fully human. But Jesus was the last Adam. Important. Jesus is the last Adam. God had no need and has no need to directly create another human being after Jesus. Because through Adam, sin came into the world and became, in a way, a God-sized problem. God's nature, God's character, require him to do, as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin are death. We were under judgment. Yet God created us to be in a right relationship with him. So what do you do? The solution was and the solution is Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Jesus, the second and last Adam, was directly created by God from scratch, and he overcame sin once and for all, just as the first Adam initiated sin. And that all went down right here at the cross, and it's why we have verses like John 3.16 and so forth. That moment of salvation is a transaction. It's a purchase and sale between an individual son of Adam, a sinner, and God. The human comes before the creator of everything and recognizes their sin, and in that transaction, the human is recognizing there's nothing they can do about it. They're hopeless and they're lonely. This is all of our states when and if we come to a point of salvation. We're hopeless because we know we're destined to hell, and we're lonely because we're separated from the creator who created us for the purpose of a right relationship. So in the admission of sin, the belief in Christ's payment or act of redemption for it, and in the confession of Jesus as Lord, that is boss, a person ex essentially exchanges their sinful self. And what's the other side of that transaction? What do we exchange ourselves for? A person sells themselves, in effect, to buy what Isaac had of Abraham, sonship. And with that adoption, with the sonship and daughtership, come that which we learn more about in the story of Jacob and Esau. When we enter into that transaction of admission of sin, belief in Christ, and confession of Lord, yes, we sell ourselves, but what we buy is the priceless eternal gift of the birthright as fully adopted sons and daughters of God and the blessing of God's acceptance and affirmation of us as in his image and of great value. Christ's work on the cross is the currency, if you will, 
so that what God sees when he sees us as a Christian is none other than Jesus Christ. Important. Unlike the Old Testament Jew who had neither the Christ nor the Holy Spirit, when we complete this transaction in which we sell ourselves to God, so to speak, not only are we buying eternal life, but we receive from God the 24-7, 365 presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit within us. Do you believe that? And if so, what do you do with it? Are you living like Adam, or are you living in the Spirit? So to wrap it up, the point is this. Recognize that just like Adam and Cain, you can't hide from God. Recognize that because of your birthright, you do not need to earn anything. Super important. Recognize that if we think, do, say, or pray out of a desire to earn God's forgiveness, in effect, we're saying by our actions, Christ died for nothing. That's pretty heavy. Recognize that if we think, do, say, or pray out of road obligation, we're like Cain, and God won't receive it with favor. Instead, what we're called to do is embrace our birthright that was so precious to Jacob and his mother. We're called to live the blessing that God covenanted into with your spiritual father, Abraham. And here ends the sermon. I dropped it. <laughs> Let me start that again. Uh, Live the blessing that God covenanted into with your spiritual father, Abraham, and with you. Be like Abel and let what you do, think, say, and pray simply be a joyful response to your Abba, Daddy, Father. And through that, we plug into the spiritual power cord that's the Holy Spirit. It's a posture of the heart. It opens our spiritual eyes so we can see and our spiritual ears so we can hear. And this is what I believe becomes a big part of how we become what we already are in Christ. So we're going to close by looking at four examples. In Christ, we're self-accepted as fully, permanently adopted sons and daughters, as we see in Galatians. But when the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So first, self-acceptance as fully, permanently adopted sons and daughters. Second, we're holders of the birthright of being joint heirs to the Father, as in Romans 8, 17. Now if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Third, we're powerful to be more than conquerors, as you see in Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And fourth, we're capable to do all things, as you see in Philippians 4.13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And the list goes on and on and on. So let that marinate, to use a denicism. And as always, as we wrap up, you're invited to come up and do whatever business you need to do right, at, uh, right after service at the foot of the cross, talking and praying with one of our prayer, war- prayer warriors, uh, whatever it takes. Uh, It's not a spectator sport. It's just between you and God. We're not watching. So don't be shy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what what a comforting, empowering, hopeful thing it is to know that I have the birthright, that we who are Christians have the birthright, that we have the blessing, that what you see when you see us is Jesus Christ, and the things you enable us to do, the things you enable us to be, for you 
as we exist with you and in you and, and really plug into the Holy Spirit are just fantastic. Uh, can't, even, can't even comprehend. So, Father, thank you for that. I pray that each one here will, will get in touch with that, will plug in, and that, Lord, uh, right here in this church, uh, you'll do amazing things through the active, present work of the Holy Spirit here and now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We are welcome to go have some food. He's waiting. He's waiting for us to return with all of our heart, with all of our soul. He's waiting to pick that thing that's out of our heart, that's before him, so he can go on to the next one, so that he can go on to the next one, so he can go on to the next one. But remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is the joy of freedom. There's the joy of of grace. There's the joy of mercy and love. But don't, don't for a moment think that God is satisfied with where we are. And it's only because he has so much more for us. So much more for us. That we would return to the house of the Father so that we can know the abundance of blessing. Lord, we again thank you for your word. Thank you that you have kept it sacred and true. Now empower your church by your grace, by your love, and by the Spirit 
that we would seek you with all of our heart and with all of our soul. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.